Data from the OECD shows that women are doing 63% more of the unpaid labor in the U.S. And this contributes to the busyness trap that many of us find ourselves in, both in work and at home. I'm fascinated how our culture contributes to this so that we can find sustainable solutions to get out of this busyness trap and burnout cycles that so many women find themselves in. You are going to want to stick around for this discussion with two amazing women who are experts on this subject. We will be talking about the issue through a lens of cultural history and race to uncover the social influences that we need to work against if we want to make progress. I'm Jill Avey, a career success coach, and this is Sister Smart Leadership, the show that explores how women can rise from director to vice president and beyond by fully leaning into their feminine energy as their biggest advantage. Let's get you one step closer to the recognition and promotion you deserve. It's been proven that companies prosper more when diversity increases, and I am working hard to support women in the workplace so we can improve gender balance. Yet the workplace isn't the same experience for all women. In fact, white women are at a distinct advantage in terms of promotions, pay, and dealing with microaggressions. When we can understand how our experience is similar and different than women of color, we can work together towards a future where all women can rise to create a truly diverse workplace that creates prosperity for all. So I'm joined here today by Mariah Johnson, who is an equity consultant with an emphasis on intersectionality of gender and race, and Ashley Cisneros-Ritter, who is the practice director at Chicago Career Consulting. And she's also the associate dean at the School of Business at North Park University, where she has also taught gender studies. So let me hear a little bit about how you both got into this work. Mariah, would you start for us? Yeah. Um, thanks, first of all, Jill, for having me here. Really excited to be a part of this conversation. My journey to where I am today has been, I don't know, ups and downs. In many ways, I didn't expect where I would end up as far as an equity consultant, but it's been so informed by my own positionality as a Black woman, my research and scholarly interest in race and education and organizations, and just trying to understand why these inequalities persist and what it looks like to find those leverage points that really create meaningful change. It's a part of the larger movement and conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, which is really popular right now. And many organizations and companies are trying to transform their organization and their culture in a way that integrates these principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or belonging and accessibility. But to do that, you have to be willing to examine those small details about your company and your culture structure as far as what is perpetuating the things that we see in society as far as inequality, but the, in the microcosm of our organization. So my journey has been examining universities as they try to engage in this work, but also government agencies and small, medium, and large organizations. I've been working now as a consultant for informally for almost a decade, but for formally for the past five years, some of that work with Ashley. So happy to be here and share some of what I've learned on my journey, both personally as a Black woman in the workplace, but also professionally as a consultant doing this work. Thank you. And Ashley, please yeah. give us a little of your background as well. Sure. I think part of my story even begins just within my own identities. So I was the first person in my uh, immediate family to go to college. I was raised by both my mother and also my grandparents, and my grandfather is Mexicano. 
and my grandmother descends from Irish immigrants. Within me, I have multiple identities, both of culture, race, and class. And so when I came into the workplace or went to university, I sort of immediately could feel these intersections at play, but some of them based on how I show up were a little bit invisible. And so part of what I think has drawn me to the work of wanting to see workplaces create healthy ecosystems for people is even just my own experience of trying to navigate so many of the workplace norms that perhaps were set by people previous to, to my arrival there. And so I think one of the things that I really love is being able to dive into that conversation both through an academic lens, but also a practitioner lens in my work with clients and with teams. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah, fantastic. Let me put a question out to you both to start. I was talking a little bit about unpaid labor when we first started today. And how does that play out in the workplace? And the statistics are that women in general do a lot more unpaid labor uh, and that might be taking notes in a meeting, it might be doing the dishes, it might be planning the company party. What other things have the two of you seen when it comes to unpaid labor? For in my work, a lot of the unpaid labor is around joining initiatives like the DEI initiative or leading employee resource groups, these more non-technical work-related work, the feelings and emotional work, emotional labor yeah. of dealing with bias and inequality in the workplace, but not really even on the meaningful levels of pay gap or the session planning that is, is diverse and inclusive, but really around culture and things of that nature. And I think that there's this association of thinking about DI work as feelings-based work. That's like the softer, lighter side. And inadvertently, that work becomes feminized and become a part of the work that women in the workplace do, specifically Black women or women of color end up getting handed that work. And again, it's not paid. It doesn't look, lead to more promotions. It doesn't reflect favorably in your evaluations. It's just mm -hmm. extra work that you're doing. And sometimes because you're really personally invested and committed to that work, um, but sometimes it just gets thrown in your lap. And so I've worked in those organizations with people doing that work. And oftentimes they're either middle management or they don't even have that much power in the organization to create the policy level and really impactful change around what it would mean to create a more equitable or inclusive workplace, but they have the extra labor again without the meaningful, powerful to shift change and make change there. So that's a lot of the unpaid labor I end up saying in my work. And I would add that on a surface level, I once had a mentor say to me, Ashley, never bring the cupcakes <laughs> to a meeting. And I said, that's hard. So part of my background, I grew up in a family business, a family of entrepreneurs, and we had a cake baking company. And so I was like, but I love making I cupcakes. Love so, cupcakes. Right, right, right. So it's not literally like I, I still bring the cupcakes. I love mm -hmm. to bake. But it was a, a reminder of don't take the path of least resistance. Sometimes that even unintentionally, folks will look to a particular person without even recognizing the bias that they're having about assigning a particular duty to them. And that's something we have to bring into more of our own conscious awareness. So yeah. that's a little bit of what I've, mm -hmm. see, I've seen with that. Can I add one thing to that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One thing I've seen and discussed with people is how often they take 
a family dynamic and bring it into the workplace. Oh, yes. And yes. when we integrated, we, we can talk about racial integration, but when we integrated gender work, gendered work or gender-based work and women started being more involved in public workspaces, what happened is men were still thinking of women in terms of you're a woman and in terms of how I think about my wife or my sister or my mother. But I need you to think about me in terms of my work. I don't need you to play to the fact that I'm a woman. And when we're at work, I just want to be your colleague who is qualified and informed and intelligent and knows what she's doing. I don't need you to be opening doors for me or being polite to me in a certain way or bending to these gendered rules that you honor in your own household or in your personal life. That's fine there if you agree to that dynamic. But in the workplace, it's so much more important that we step outside of the gender performance that we're so used to and we've bought into so much. I had one mentor when I was doing my research for my leadership program. We were talking about how women can seem aggressive when they come off too strong. And he said, oh yeah, <laughs> that takes me right back to the original woman who ever told me what to do, which is my mom. <laughs> and so, uh, and I thought, oh gosh, yeah, we are, we are bringing our whole history in. And, and sometimes I'm sure that we bring our dads into the room too. And so- that all comes in and we need to be able to recognize that when it's happening. And what, what do we do about that? Recognize it and then shift into, this is the workplace, not at home. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like one of the things that happens with women is we just keep working harder and trying to balance it all. There's a lot that plays into this piece. This I call it the busyness trap, but there's so many different influences that keep us just doing more and more. Yeah, I think I'll jump in there with that one because I was thinking about this just this morning. So with what Mariah was saying just a moment ago, like we want work to be work. Uh, one of the things I observe both in workplaces and also with clients is that sometimes women come into work and they've taken that to mean now I need to meet whatever the norms are here. I need to meet the standards. I need to quote, leave my home at home, leave my baggage at home, right? And part of what we have to recognize and start saying out loud is that the norms that were created in the workplace previously were built around a different society, right? Many mm -hmm. of them were very patriarchal in nature. So we have equated in our heads professionalism with patriarchal norms, and that's not the case. So when we say, oh, we want to be at work and we want to be seen for our competency, that doesn't mean we don't, we aren't seen as a whole person because that's more of the kind of workplace we need to see in general for however someone identifies their gender. So I'll give you an example. In some workplaces, I, and I even have said this, I like to hold a high standard of excellence and absolutely we can do that. But sometimes we've taken that to mean that nothing can fall through and it all has to be done to a perfection level. And when we do that, we actually create a dynamic of overwork. So I see this over and over again, a lack of systems in the workplace to support people. And so we see people working, not just a certain number of hours, but way over what is actually good for human wellness. Mm -hmm. And we've normalized that. We've said, that's okay to do. You got to put in your time. And we can look to so many examples. You can Google right now, Mayo Clinic, and see what are some of the symptoms of stress, of burnout. These are actual 
physical symptoms in the body. So part of what we have to recognize, particularly for the listeners, if it, you know, most of you might identify as women, part of what we have to recognize is that we can't just jump into that and keep that cycle going. We have to find the points of influence where we can start to shift what is normalized. So I'll pause there. I've got more examples, but I want to hear what my colleague has to say. No, that's a great point. It's funny because we can say there's so much work to be done, so I always have to be working. Or we can say there's so much work to be done, there's no point in always working. Like, And that's been my mindset shift. Because I have so much work, I can come back to it tomorrow and I can continue moving on with it. But it is a mixture of the type of work environment that's been created. And it's fast. Everything's fast. Deliverables need to be produced quickly with perfect perfection and high quality and everything like that. And so I really think it's valuable in, in the work I do. Incorporating reflection and pauses is such an imp important part of my work. When we keep going and we move so fast, that's when we make the most mistakes. And that's where we reproduce inequalities and we reproduce norms that are just familiar to us because we're not stopping to actually reflect on any harm. And we're not stopping to reflect on what needs to change now that the workplace demographically looks so different, right? If you don't do that, then you're going to get trapped in this business trap and you're going to get trapped in these um, cultures of harm and these cultures that reproduce inequality. And so truthfully, there is a lot of work to be done. So go ahead and decide that at 6 p.m. at night, we stop the work and we pick it back up at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. or however your work schedule is organized. Put down the work. I also will just add, too, that I work with folks in a variety of different industries I recognize this looks different in different spaces. I, what comes to mind is I have some close friends who are in the medical field. And so many of us have the luxury of being able to say, this isn't, no one's dying. They may not have that luxury. Right. There, is a, there is difficulty based on your space, but that doesn't mean that we can keep doing what is not humanly possible, right? So we have right. to have some movement toward a more sustainable work life. And some of this is on the individual, and some of it is on the organization. Right. I would say most of it's usually on the organization, truthfully, because the individual is responding to the organizational culture that they are in. But we also influence each other. It's a symbiotic relationship. So we all have to examine where our sphere of influence is and the risks we're willing to take. So just to give an example of what I've done sometimes on teams and when I'm encouraging other teams based on what Mariah said about pauses, operationalize these things once a month in your meeting. Maybe instead of just talking about business as usual, maybe it's a known thing right among your team. Hey, we take an equity pause once a month to specifically, and hopefully we're doing it every day, but to specifically say, what are we moving really quickly on that we just need to pause and notice and start to identify a potential new pathway of dealing with that issue or that problem? This is something that it, it, you don't have to call it an equity pause. It could just be an organizational pause. Mm -hmm. And where are we out of alignment with both our own personal values, but also our organizational values too? Yeah, I love that, Ashley. And I think it's such a great practice when you're able to leverage something you're already doing. Instead of adding another meeting to the calendar, just go ahead and use that, that meeting that's already in your calendar. Take that five to 10 minutes at the beginning or the end. Do something really human that's really valuable to your organization and your culture um, that you're trying to create. So I, I love that. And what kind of questions should teams be asking themselves at that time? Yeah, that's a 
Great question. Yeah. It's a values check-in. Where might we be out of alignment with our values, including equity and considering that and how we approach our work? So you might ask, who this month slowed a process down so that they could make sure the quality was a better outcome for the recipient of whatever the process was, right? If you start to almost create a, an expectation of positive association when something is slowed down for the sake of a better outcome, you will find people will start to move in that direction more. So asking work for where there were wins Asking where, I use the term sticky wicket. Like, where's a sticky wicket? Where's something that's like a sticky, it's like stuck and we don't know how to solve it. And maybe we don't have time to, but we can identify it here. And then we can take some time in another meeting to really take more time with whatever the issue is. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. And I like to ask about what's stressful and what's tedious. There's some tasks that you do daily or weekly and you've start to not even think about it. It's just a normal thing that you do. And so what would it mean to take a moment to just ask yourself a few questions about that task? What's that task? What's the goal of that task? Why does it need to be done so frequently? And just really asking questions about it because there have been so many times I've been working in a company, like a full-time employee in a company, and I just practice what I was told to practice. Like, and onboarding, I was told to do this thing. So every month I do it, but I don't question it. I don't reflect on it. I don't examine any aspects of it. It's just a part of my normal functioning. And then you can also ask about what's stressful. What's a task or aspect of your job that is stressful, um, that adds extra stress? Reflecting on it, unpacking it. Is there a ways we can ease the stress through collaboration or making it more efficient or automating it? What can we do about it? So it doesn't even have to be a reflection on equity. But just reflecting on our own task and the things that we regularly do in our role can give us a moment to re-examine and reflect and shift to action or shift some element of our job. And those are some of the things that I do with companies. And it can be so powerful for someone to realize that something they had normalized, something that they just had routinized and it just was a part of the role could actually become an opportunity to improve the role and an opportunity to, to relieve stress for them. And that can be really transformative. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Mariah. So often the solutions we need are like right there. If we will stop and ask each other and find at least something. Jill, I do want to add one other thing to your question because I think this is probably the best place to put it. So I tend to not focus on the ind individual. I tend to focus on the organization and all the things we can do. But real talk, let's just have a moment here where we say, so I am a, I have a partner at home. I have a spouse. I have two kids. Here's the thing. <laughs> I see far too many of my, we'll just say folks in, in this kind of season of life, I observe that it's easier to complain about our partners than it is to say to them directly, here's exactly where I need the help. Right now, I'm in a unique situation in that my spouse is very active in our home life, right? And, and he has the freedom in his work life to be able to do that as well. But that aside, I think sometimes we make it harder on ourselves by just growing in resentment versus simply clearly communicating these are the things that I need to stop my own need to do it my way, and I need to. Let go, let it go, let the laundry sit there, let the whatever, let it happen, right? 
because the world does not end and begin with your own ability to live into whatever domestic dreams that are going on for yourself inside. So there's my little real talk moment for us. I love it. I tell you, it was a journey for me when I, when my husband started doing the laundry and I had to let go of what I thought it was, should look like. And sometimes we have to replace things more often. That's okay. Because it's the same thing as when we delegate to our team at work, we have to accept that things are going to get done in their way and not necessarily our way. And sometimes that's better. And sometimes it's maybe not the way we would do it and we see a potential for improvement, but it, it it's is. embracing it, embracing what everybody's bringing. Yeah. Oh, embracing what everyone's bringing. I do wonder if there is a role that gender plays in like management style as far as micromanaging versus a more flexible hands-off management style because I have experienced that need for things to be done particularly like the way that I want them X, Y, and Z that's extra work for us too, right? We're overworking ourselves by not trusting our teams to do things and not allowing their own style for how we get it done if the quality is there, right? Because some things are about quality, some things maybe about the client need or perspective, and some things might just be your own stylistic preferences that don't actually matter to the quality of the work and add extra labor to you. For what? What? Yeah. Freeing yourself from that, I think, at the at work and at home is really powerful I, and necessary. I think that's really important, Mariah, because to Ashley's point, she's thinking about the organization and where I work is the, the individual level. And so I see that this happens a lot. <laughs> that mm-hmm. We know as women and for women of color, it's even more important. We know that we have to be better. We know we have to have higher quality. We have to have everything ticked and tied. We have to know our data because we are going to be questioned on it and we are going to be doubted. And so I think it's very, very hard for people to automatically know where to stop. Mm -hmm. And that's a concept that I'm really thinking a lot about is what is enough and what are our upper limits on things? Because as you were talking before, like there's no limit to how much work we can do. Right. Greg McEwen's latest book got me thinking about this is he was talking about setting that limit to how many things you'll do a day and how much you'll put into something. And I think that's a really important piece here of deciding where enough is enough and how good do we have to be, you know? Yeah. And I think that's about prioritization and clarifying expectations even. And we may be afraid if we are in a middle management position and there is upper management, we may be uncomfortable to ask, hey, what's the expectations for my role or what's the expectations for like task or this deliverable specifically or whatever it may be? Clarifying those expectations, but then setting your priorities. One of my priorities, work is not my life. I had to accept and realize that. And once I did... I could reorganize where I put it and how much time I gave to thinking about work when I wasn't working. Because if work is not my life, then when I'm spending time with my husband, I can't be thinking about that problem I was trying to solve earlier. Like I really have to detach from certain things, which has been a process in and of itself. And it's funny how much you can learn from male workers. Honestly, one of my colleagues, he was like, he had such a like distant perspective on the work. And I was like, how do you not feel more deeply about this? And I felt so attached to the work. And he was like, because this is the task. This is what they wanted. We did it. There's no feelings about it. And there was so much to take away from that. And obviously we're different people. We feel different things, but I've really tried to practice detachment from some elements of my work 
so that I can be present when I'm doing other things and when I'm with family and friends and other priorities in my life. So I think deciding what your priorities are and how much energy and time and emotional labor you'll give to certain things can be really valuable. And as much as we value and believe in feeling your feelings, there's got to be a time limit or a constraint around (laughs) how much you will feel your feelings when it comes to things that are lower on your priority list. If, If work is your number one priority, then it's your number one priority. But if it's not, if it is two or three on your priority list, then don't give it 16 hours of your day as far as the emotional and uh, mental space that it takes up. Really evaluate that piece. Jill, I know we probably have more questions going, but I want to say, I want to add to that. Is that okay, Mariah? <laughs> yes, what are please. We, well, I think, I think you brought up a really, I, I'm liking this idea of us talking about the mental labor that happens outside of work. Part of what also goes on too is that we're engaging all day long with a set of physiological responses to stimuli at work. And we all have a different, we'll say neurological profile. Now I'm not a brain scientist. I'm not here to express that kind of expertise. But what I can tell you is it's very important to recognize what are your stress signals during the day? And then how are you managing those when you're not working? Part of what we don't realize is that sometimes by solving problems at work or getting things done, we get a real nice, strong dopamine hit from right. that, like checkbox, boop, and it feels good. And we get somewhere else and we're like, I don't want to stop that. So our brain actually starts to want that feeling over and over And what can happen is we easily can put ourselves on the pathway toward the busyness trap simply because it almost feels, believe it or not, and everyone's going to say it doesn't feel good. But if you start to notice there's something in it that you're getting something out of that. Mm -hmm. Part of my neurological profiles, I have the ability to, or Mariah was talking about neurodivergence earlier, I have the ability to hyper-focus. I can go deep on something, big time. And so when I'm solving a problem at work, I'm going to go like a deep sea diver. I'm gone 48 hours. Boom, I'm going to go into it. That's fine. But if I'm doing that all the time, if there isn't a coming back up for air, if there isn't a way that I'm stepping off of that kind of treadmill, yeah. uh, my, my body is not resting right. when I'm outside of solving that problem. We have to notice when we're continuing to do that mental labor. I just wanted to share that it's, mm-hmm. if you want to look, <laughs> yeah, if you want to, yeah, Mariah's snapping. If you oh, want right. to look more into some of that, you can look into some of the, what the Nagoski sisters have put out on some of their material on burnout. Fantastic. Yeah. I think there is yeah. a real emotional component to why we do what we do and how much we're working and how much we're taking on and the perfectionist tendencies People pleasing is also another big one that comes in here of wanting everybody to like us and be happy with our work. And mm. this speaks a little bit to Mariah, what you were talking about, about that letting go. It can feel funny to let go because, yeah. you know, how do you let go at the end of the day and not worry about whether you did a good enough job or whether right. it was enough or, you know, there's a lot of that happens. Yeah. yeah. And so we've been talking about this busyness trap a lot. And Mariah, I'd love to hear more from your perspective about how intersectionality plays into the busyness trap. And mm-hmm. if you could define that first for us a little bit and then go into a little bit more in detail for us, that'd be great. Absolutely. And I just have to say intersectionality is probably one of my favorite kind of theories 
probably because it was the first one I read. I was like, oh my gosh, this is my life. This is my experience. And then be able to see it in all of the work that I do. So first things first, crediting who came up with or who coined the term, Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term um, intersectionality. Um, she's a Black woman. She's a scholar. If you've heard the concept of critical race theory, she also developed that or co-developed that with some other legal scholars. But her work around it was really assessing how Black women and women of color's experiences were made invisible by the legal structure and lack of acknowledgement of how race and gender impact your experience in the workplace. And so she was studying a case, and the case was from the 60s, and it involved a really big company who had laid off a bunch of Black women workers. And they had a class lawsuit um, against the company, and the, the court said that they had to argue for either race-based discrimination or sex-based discrimination to prove their case. And they argued for race-based discrimination. And when they did, the court found there was no validity because Black men worked at the company still. So how can it be race-based if there are Black people or Black men who still work at the organization? And then when they argued for sex-based discrimination, the court found their argument invalid because white women still worked at the organization. These women work at the organization. How can it be sex-based discrimination? And Kimberly Crenshaw uh, analyzes how the legal system literally made the experience of the Black women invisible by not acknowledging the intersectionality of race and sex when it comes to discrimination in the workplace because of the policy around not allowing Black women to work in this industry until later. It was a last in, first out type of firing. And by virtue of that, Black women were impacted greatly and experience this unique kind of positionality. And so intersectionality really captures how systems of oppression or systems of inequality are intersecting. It's not just about being Black or it's not just about race, it's about gender. It can be about class. It can be about even religion. Whenever you think about these different characteristics or, or social dynamics and how there's a hierarchy associated with it, if you look at the intersections, you'll see how doubly impacted or triply impacted certain groups are mm -hmm. um, in the workplace and in society more broadly. And so when we're talking about the busyness trap, we've talked a little bit about the impact to women of color, but diving a little bit deeper into that, in the workplace, women of color are, are paid less than white women and men, but women of color are less likely to be promoted. I just learned recently that I think it's 52% of Black women in senior executive positions end up resigning due to racially related or unfair treatment. 52%. So of the small amount that are able to get promoted and matriculate up the corporate ladder, half of them aren't even staying or aren't going beyond that because of racism or race-related um, discrimination. And you can't ignore the gender aspect of that. And so when I think about intersectionality, when I think about gender, I really do see it through a race lens not only because I'm a Black woman and I can't separate out my gender from my race, but be because I see the differences in white women's experience in the workplace versus Hispanic women's experience in the workplace versus Asian women versus Black women. And those differences are so important to acknowledge when we're thinking about how do we create cohesive and collective action that benefits all women. We can't just use a blanket approach, we have to look at those intersections of race, of class, of language, of education, 
of all these different characteristics. So that's a little bit about intersectionality. I can talk so much about it because it really is just a really powerful tool, a really powerful analytical tool for understanding what we're seeing in the work. Can you give us an example of how we would use that when we're trying to make a change in our corporate culture? Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit about it. But in my work, when I do equity audits, um, it can be really interesting because oftentimes companies will give me some of the data they've already collected and they'll say most of our employees, let's say 82% of our employees report no discrimination and positive treatment and all of these things. And they give me this very quant kind of approach to assessing these things. And when I ask for greater detail around the gender differences or their race and gender differences or a breakdown of that information, they either won't have the data because they didn't collect it, or when they do, I see that white males are the 82%, make up the 82% saying things are fair, things are fine. And so when we don't split things up by race or gender or use that intersectional lens, we miss the problem areas and opportunities for building solutions, right? So then if you are able to look at that other 18% and see that it was mostly women, it was mostly people who speak, whose English is not their first language, or it was mostly Black women, it was mostly people who haven't been able to be promoted, then you can have conversations and you can start to ask what's going on there. Instead of just saying the majority of our employees experience positive treatment, we can say the majority of women and women of color employees do not experience positive treatment. And what does it look like to begin to build solutions that center the groups that are most impacted negatively by inequity in our policies or our programming or our promotion and things of that nature. So that that intersectional lens really helps you to actually see what's going on versus making blanket statements and usually in favor of the company and their culture. I'd love to add some another example that I see as well. I work when I work with teams, one of the the reasons that intersectionality is so important is because it just provides us simply a lens through which to see. It's recognizing that often, as you were saying, the lens we are using sometimes is benefiting perhaps a certain group that's at the table. I know some people, I'll just, I'll acknowledge, for some folks, and, and maybe even some folks listening, they get very nervous or uncomfortable when we start acknowledging these aspects of identity. And something I'd want to be clear on is we're not saying anything that isn't already existing in the room. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that sometimes I, I, I hear a pushback or a fear, even just the, the, the term, there's a concern that somehow another layer is being added that wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. But the reality is these aspects of identity are always in the room. Right. We're just giving voice to them. So I'll give you an example. Sometimes when I go into organizations, usually, and every single organization I've ever worked with, there's always one group that says that group is not doing the, uh, their job. And then the other group says that group's definitely not doing their job. And they're like, oh, yeah, we are, this we are. And, and so th this is a human behavior. Mm -hmm. um, this is a human thing. This is, you'll see this everywhere you go. But part of what I think is really interesting that we have to acknowledge is that when one group says that, they have to also be aware of what else is being said in that moment. What is the context? Because if one group is saying, this group isn't doing a good job or what have you, and you look at actually, you see that group also has a particular gender uh, makeup, has a particular racial dynamic, has a particular, well now 
you have a, a situation where it's not just a question of one team's abilities or competencies. It's also a racialized perception. But the thing is, and this is something for those of you listening, you may not be seeing me. So I look white. I am white. I identify as both white and also I have Latina heritage based on what I shared previously about my family. And so one of the things that I need my white colleagues and counterparts to recognize is that for our colleagues of color or colleagues of different cultural background, this part of who they are is always in the room. It's never not there. So we have to recognize that's part of the story. So that, That's a great point, Ashley. And that's what the work is about. It's about making visible the invisible, right? Like those things, those little harms or microaggressions or why do I keep getting overlooked for the promotion or all of these questions that honestly a lot of uh, people of color, women of color colleagues are asking themselves constantly when they're at work. All these questions, it's always there, but whether we have the conversation and whether we acknowledge it is the only thing that changes. Acknowledging it, being open to that reality is so important. I've heard people say, my Black colleagues or employees never said anything. That is a comment that someone has never said anything. Or, or even if you think about harm caused by sexual harassment, or he never did anything to me. Because it, it's not your experience, you haven't observed it, it hasn't been explicitly identified or pointed out to you, then we create this universal idea that it doesn't exist. It, my experience is universal to everyone's experience. But the truth is, when we're talking about the workplace, when we talk about harassment, discrimination, inequities, the workplace is not experienced the same by every employee, every leader, every person that walks in, through the door or remote work even. It's not experienced the same. Everyone's experience in part is not just shaped by who I am by an individual, whether I'm an extrovert or introvert or whether I have 10 years experience in this industry or two years of experience, whether I feel qualified or, or, or not. It's not just shaped by those things. It's shaped by the way we structure the workplace around race, gender, class, education, roles, all of those things are really informing how people feel, what it feels like to do the work. And I feel like when we can start to have these conversations, we can open up, going back to your comment about setting expectations and what are your expectations, it takes so much of the guesswork out of your work life. And because a lot of this overperforming and overworking comes from not knowing exactly where you stand and always feeling like you're coming off the back foot. And so I think these conversations are really important so that we can just talk about this stuff and get it out on the table. And have that discussion so that people understand more about where they're at and and where each other are at. And so we can really start to make those connections. Yeah, absolutely. I ask direct questions too. And it's not, and to be clear, it's not in my nature necessarily to be direct. I am an introvert, but I do find, let's make it clear. Let's be real straightforward. What is your feedback? What is your expectations? I like getting feedback early so I can adjust so that there, are, and I document it that it's never a thing of, you never told me that. I have written what you said about my performance. I have written down the feedback I've been given um, because I have found that I'll receive feedback and then at a 90-day evaluation or uh, annual evaluation, something else will be brought up and I'll be like, interesting, because I asked you for feedback multiple times. I wrote down that feedback and it's inconsistent. And so things like that, I think, again, is very much a part of the experience for women of color. And so documentation can be your best friend 
when dealing with kind of the inequities and the unconscious bias of even our leadership within the organizations that we work. You know, Jill, I think I'd like to tie back one other point for your listeners as well about how intersectionality also connects with the busyness trap. One of the things I think is even a really important realization just to have for yourself is to recognize that the option to fall into overwork or to cultivate a culture of overwork is in fact its own form of privilege, right? And I'm referring Mm -hmm. to a variety of different kinds of privileges, but specifically economic privilege, perhaps racial privilege. I'll just give you an example. I think we have to recognize what the historical financial dynamics, how that plays a role in the roles people have to carry in their life. To our point, now this is not true for all of my colleagues of color, all of my colleagues who are Black women, This isn't true for all of them because there's never any group that you can qualify like that. But I think it's an important note to say, if you are someone who is able to work 70, 80 hours a week, there is someone else in your life taking care of a lot of other things. That is not a privilege that is afforded to everyone, right? Mm -hmm. So again, I think part of what, and for those of you listening who are the directors, the vice presidents in places, this is where I think we need to see the different needs people have in the workplace. Sometimes when we move into those leadership roles, it gets very, we're a little nervous to make changes, right? We don't want to be perceived as making too many changes. But I'll just give you an example. I, I For my own parental leaves, I work for a very small startup uh, nonprofit for one of my leaves, and they were very gracious and at least in the context that we're in, and gave me a paid 12 weeks, and that was great. And then for another uh, place that was slightly larger, still didn't have a lot of resources, but they were slightly larger. I had three paid weeks. Three. One, two, three. I'm sorry. You can barely walk across the room at that point, okay? So we have to start bringing these conversations out. Now, was I still able to take more time? Sure, but Was all the paid vacation used? Was all the, and again, I think- And not everyone would have been able to do that. Not not everyone can do that. So I think, again, the reason I want to point out how intersectionality connects with this busyness trap is that one of the best things that each of us can do is start to stop contributing to a culture of overwork and start creating actual more human expectations on everyone because that's where we all should be. The overwork culture is something that is is ironically relegated to just a few. And that's where then again, you see the promotional pathways for that group of people as well. If I can add, interestingly enough, oftentimes our relationship to work and overworking was learned when we were children. And what we saw our families do and what their relationship to work was. If you saw your mom or your dad constantly working, you're more likely to think and normalize that behavior and bring it into your own career path. So again, that's another time where reflection becomes really important. Actually, I feel like it was in a training we did or work we did together, but maybe I'm misremembering. We've done a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) 
But getting people to start thinking about their relationship to work and their and the culture of work that they have and beliefs around work that they have mm -hmm. um, and reflect on that and why that is and if that's what they want. Maybe it's something I've done with one-on-one -on -one client. But no, it's familiar. We we okay. talked about beliefs about work. I think that yes. is I'm like I, I think we just as a as an organization, we take our clients through what are your beliefs about work? Yeah. And what are the are your behaviors coherent with your actual beliefs? Yeah. And all of that, even thinking about family dynamics, like all of that. I, I, I tell my husband I'm newly married, but we talk about what we saw in marriage growing up and different things like that. My mom was a stay at home mom and wife and my dad worked and was able to matriculate and become a an higher up exec in his company because of all the labor my mom did at work. And when I got married, I started just doing what I saw my mom do, but wasn't realistic because I worked. You know, it wasn't realistic for me to do, to cook meals. My mom cooked meals and cleaned and did everything and homeschooled and raised seven children. So she was doing everything, right? And I tried to do the same thing. And like for the first few months of marriage, I talked, I stayed, I stopped and talked to my husband. I was like, I can't do this. That's just not <laughs> realistic. And he was like, I never asked you to do it. I was like, I know. <laughs> but my own beliefs about what a yeah. wife does. Oh, this is good. It was yeah. my default. It was yeah. just my default. And so reflecting on my new role as a wife, reflecting on my role of my other roles as well can be such a powerful tool in helping me to decide what I want to be as a wife, as a person, as a consultant, as a as a black woman in this space, like all of those things. You can think about the different roles you play and the different identities you hold and make a decision, a conscious decision about what you would like to who you would like to be in that role or how you would like to perform that role. Because if you don't make a conscious decision, your default will be what mm -hmm. you saw, whether you saw it growing up or in college or in your first job, wherever those significant messaging, messaging was coming from, mm -hmm. you will default to that. And so I think it's really important that we stop and reflect. I think ref critical self-reflection is a powerful tool um, in this work. That's such a good point. That's such a good point. And I was raised by a single mom. I, Similarly, saw like a got to do everything, right? Mm -hmm. This is a really good point. Yeah. And if like it you, is. Ashley, if you have a partner that is willing and able to do other stuff, it's so wonderful to sit back and let that happen versus run around. Even today, I was like, talk, I told my husband, I have a mentally busy day today. I have the podcast and a few meetings, X, Y, and Z. And he was like, okay, I'm going to make breakfast. And what can I do to support you? And having that allows me to do what I'm doing and allows me to do things I enjoy and I'm passionate about and things like that. And I get that's a privilege too. Not everyone has that. And it's a new privilege that I have, but I'm really enjoying. <laughs> so highly recommend. Good for you. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so uh, to bring all of this into our companies, Mariah, you do what's called an equity audit. Can you tell yeah. us more about what you do in that work? So yes. how we the solutions that we can bring into the companies. And speaking of work that I love, I love working with organizations and, and companies who are interested in change. They want to see what's possible. How do we do this stuff? And it usually starts with, again, reflection. Now, whether that's I encourage you to do self-reflection, which I do, or reflecting on your organization, that's a part of the equity audit. I was just working with an organization. I just submitted their equity report that comes out of the audit that I do. But it started with looking at their policies, looking at their policies. I even usually do a website review because that's who you say you are. So let me take a look at that. 
Let me talk to staff of different levels of the organization. What's their perception of the culture and who you are and what you do, your values, your behaviors, how you interact and treat people at different points of the organization hierarchy or the organization chart is really informative about who you are as an organization. So looking at these different things, policies, program, how you behave, talking to those people are really important parts of the audit. And then at some point, I'm usually talking to you through which equity framework makes sense for your work. So one organization came to me and they were like, we want to use the JEDI framework. So that's justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. After looking through their programming, I was like, it seems like you already practice diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Is that a framework you'd be interested in leaning greater into, or would you like to lean into JEDI? And the reason that matters is because JEDI is a more systems-focused equity framework. And by that, we're talking about policies, we're talking about laws, we're talking about systems. Belonging is more so human-focused. It's about how does it feel to be present in that place? How is it, are you able to be yourself, show up as yourself, things of that nature? And they decide they wanted to lean more into belonging. And so once they made that decision, I was able to tell them where they had alignment and misalignment and make recommendations to close that gap. So that was some of the first pieces of work we do. And one thing, stages I like to take organizations through if they're willing to go through the process, it's starting with awareness and education. Some people don't have that awareness. So how can I bring awareness and education And then it's getting them to engage in equity practice. And then the last stage and final stage is equity identity. Every organization has to decide what their equity identity is. How is it going to become a part of who they are, what they do, a natural outpour of, of all those things? Because my big thing as far as sustainability in this work is not increasing your trainings on equity or not increasing your work, but transforming how you do your work. And getting you to examine and reflect on how you do your work and how you can incorporate and embed equity into that. And so once I get them to that stage of equity identity, they're saying, this is who we are. And it informs everything we do from here on out. That's how you get to sustainability. And so that's some of the work I, again, I could talk about it forever because I really do enjoy the work. (laughs) I really do enjoy doing the work. And when you get an organization that really wants to do it and go through that journey, it's just so much fun. That's That's some of the work that I get to do. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate you two coming on with me today. I always like to give uh, our listeners three shifts that they can make today, either mindset or actions that they can take. What are three things that we could that we could suggest for our listeners today? So the two I have, they really are mindset shifts, but they can look like practices. So one is critical self-reflection. I think that reflection not only is not natural in the current work environment because of how quickly we move, which we've been talking about throughout this entire conversation, but because it just we just become routinized and we just become entrenched in our daily routines. And so pausing and reflecting can be a powerful opportunity to consider what shifts you want to make, how you want to transform the work you do, how you want to show up at your workplace, how you want to show up at home, how you want to address busyness and reducing those things that just aren't necessary. Reflection is really important to that. Number two, and this can be a part of your reflection, is asking who benefits and who is harmed. If you are in a position of leadership, asking this can help you be a better leader as far as thinking, I'm benefiting from women of color doing extra work, but are they harmed by this task that I've just given them for Black History Month or for Women History Month or 
whatever additional labor that you're observing from, from the people that work within your organization. And if you're not in a position of leadership or there is still someone over you asking in those meetings where you take on more or where you don't speak up and share your perspectives, who benefits and who is harmed? And so I think that's a really important part of the reflecting, but it's a certain type of reflection that can get us to answer our own questions about what we need to be doing, right? I don't need to tell you what to do, but I can give you some encouragement of what to consider. Great. Great. Thank you. Mine is from what we were discussing with intersectionality to recognize, and this is primarily for those listening who identify as, as primarily white, recognize that race is always in the room. You never have, it's never not. And that goes with any aspect of identity. People, who we are, the aspects of our gender, our race, our class, these things are in the room. So let's go ahead and take that into account and consider how that plays a role in your relationships and what kind of awareness do you want to bring that into for yourself and how does that inform how you lead? So that's one. Always, it's always in the room. And then two, and this is for the individual. So the first one was more organizational. This is individual. I had a close friend once say I was giving empathy for something that they had to make a decision about work that was very hard for their family. I said, you must have not had a choice. And she said, you know what I've learned? You always have a choice. And for those who are listening, I just want to bring your locus of control into your awareness as we were talking about the busyness trap, I want you to notice where in your life are you ruminating on something that really ticks you off or makes you mad or you're working super hard at and no one sees it. And I just want you to recognize where in that situation do you actually have a choice? Because I hear that over and over again from folks. I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. There are many things that keep us from having choices. But we have to find wherever our sliver of power is in that situation. And too often we give that up too early. So recognize what do you actually need to be well and take ownership of that choice. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I would love if you're listening to this on YouTube, I would love to hear in the comments which part of this conversation you like the most or what has inspired you. And if you'd like to hear more about the Sisters in Leadership process of how we help women to be more successful in the workplace and how this might work for you, download my private podcast on the seven-step passport to promotion. It's on the sistersmart.com website and the link is below in the show notes. And if you want to dive deeper into women's leadership and how to move up in your career, subscribe either on YouTube or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm on a mission to help more women get into leadership and stay there. And if that's aligned with you, I'd love for you to be part of this community and tune into more episodes on Sister Smart Leadership that will support you in becoming the leader that you want to be. If you're ready to fully lean into your feminine leadership and get promoted from director to vice president and beyond, hit that subscribe button so you'll get all the episodes to come. And check out the recommended video here to see how women are rising up without playing by the old rules that built these male-dominated industries and systems. If you're seeing just how differently women lead and how by doing so, women leaders can gain influence, restore balance, and earn the recognition and promotions they deserve, I would love it if you left a rating and review. I read each one and these reviews make it possible for me to reach more women leaders like you so they can rise up as far as they'd like without getting stuck.